sector allies, civil society, and multilateral institutions to tackle complex global challenges. This year's GDF is titled uh, Preparing for Tomorrow Today. Uh, panels will focus on urbanization in Africa, development finance, youth, human rights, long-term trends in development, and water sustainability. Uh, I'd like to thank, especially thank my friends at Chevron uh, for being the core sponsor of the Global Development Forum and for our partnership on the project on U.S. leadership and development. We couldn't do this without Chevron. They have just been such a great partner. Um, it's really hard um, to do this kind of work, and it really helps if you've got a long-term partner who believes in you. So I'm very, very grateful to our friends at Chevron. Um, I want to now turn the floor over to my really good friend, Mamadou Bey. It's great to see you um, from Chevron, who's going to introduce um, the right honorable Tony Blair, who I think is going to be here, uh, who's just, he's here. OK, so come on, so come on up, Mamadou. Good morning. Good morning. All right, so good. We are all ready uh, to listen to a great speaker. And then I think that I really don't need to introduce uh, uh, Prime Minister Blair, but I'll, I, I have to do that. <laughs> so my name is Mamadou Bey. I'm a general manager for uh, corporate affairs uh, for Chevron Africa, Latin America, uh, based in Houston. Uh, so it's really a great pleasure uh, for Chevron to be associated uh, with this event. And uh, so special thanks to CSIS uh, for organizing this event, for our continued partnership vision, and Dan, Randy, that I've been working with since uh, 2002, uh, the first uh, public-private partnership that Chevron has set up with USAID um, to tackle some of the issues of development uh, in countries where we operate. Great leadership, Dan. Thank you very much. I uh, certainly appreciate the opportunity to engage and exchange views uh, with such an esteemed group. Uh, more than a decade ago, Dan and I first met, right, like I was just explaining, in, uh, for, uh, for some work in Angola. Uh, and our work in Angola helped consolidate peace and return tens of thousands of people uh, to peaceful economic activities. It also sparked a new way of thinking about partnerships with the private sector. Back then, we did not imagine we will be here today with Prime Minister Tony Blair uh, and USAID Administrator Mark Green to um, delving deeply into the future and the role of the private sector in development. And when we started the partnership with Dan and CSIS, our goal was to just have the private sector views as full partner and actor in global development. With the release of USAID private sector engagement policy in December, it is heartening to see the progress we all have made as a community and to look to the next chapter in development at the future of development. Chevron is pleased to be here today and with so many of our partners and collaborators. I look forward to the conversation uh, with all of us all over the next few hours. I applaud all the participants for here today with your colleagues and global network uh, who are working nationally and internationally to create a more robust, uh, active dialogue about development. We in, we in the private sector are grateful to be part of this effort. All of us play a vital role in delivering sustainable economic growth, social development, and environmental protection to provide a better future for this generation and those to come. Every day, the people of Chevron contribute by providing the energy that improves lives and help power the world. As we carry out our business mission, we are advancing human progress. And we know through decades of experience that our business success 
is intertwined with social progress. None of us can achieve progress alone. Progress demands partnership, and that is really our motto. In energy-producing countries worldwide, we work hand-in-hand -hand with host governments, NGOs, to use resources to improve people's livelihood. We create jobs, we source from local suppliers, we employ local workforces, and we generate revenue for the government. And it is critical that government are uh, capacitated to do their job. Our work is emblematic of our ongoing commitment to the Sustainable Development Goals. Our work through partnership is our path to helping enable positive and sustained generational change in the communities that need the most. I'm certainly looking forward to talking with you throughout the day as we explore ideas and future trends in development. We don't have the solutions, all the solutions. We need to continuously improve. Now it is my honor uh, to introduce our special guest speaker, like I already said, with uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair, Executive Chairman of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, and obviously, as if you don't know, former Prime Minister, former British Prime Minister from 97 to 2007. Prime Minister Blair has been a great friend of to CSIS over the years and served as a co-chair of the CSIS Commission on Countering Violence Extremism. Since leaving office, Prime Minister Blair has spent most of his time working on three areas, supporting governance to deliver effectively for their people, working for peace in the Middle East, and countering extremism. I was just pleased to hear that uh, Prime Minister Blair just came from the Sahel region. I'm originally from Mali, so that was really music to my ear, to see that you are deeply involved in resolving the problem in the Sahel. Thank you very much for your leadership on that. He has helped establish the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change to work on some of the most difficult challenges in the world today, including how the center ground of politics renew itself with practical policy solutions. I'm excited, and I'm sure you are all also eager to hear his thoughts on the changing development landscape about the, and about the Institute's presence throughout the world and the work surrounding governance and rule of law. And I certainly additionally want to hear also his views about the Sahel. Thank you very much, and please, let's welcome Prime Minister Blair. Please. Oh, we're so happy to have you, Mr. Blair. Thank you. You're, the, um, you're so welcome here at CSIS, and you've been such a great partner and friend to us. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you to invite me, and thanks to CSIS and uh, Mohamed and all his colleagues at Chevron for putting on such a great show today. Well, I just I have to, as a moment of a personal privilege, just make I, I remember very clearly 9/11. And I remember that you came to the United States um, on no November the 20th to be with us uh, when, uh, when the, the country mourned. And so um, many people in the United States remember that, and we have a, a personal connection with you. And so I know you are always warmly welcomed here, and that is why you're so warmly welcomed here. And I'm very grateful, and the United States was very grateful for what you did and the British people did. Well, it's uh, good to be warmly welcomed somewhere. <laughs> well, look, thank you I'm for still working on a few other places. <laughs> well, you have a you. We will, you know, you will always be welcome here, and thank you have you. many, many friends, and, and we're very, very grateful thank for you. your friendship. And 
We, uh, there are a number of things we want to talk about, including the United Kingdom in this conversation, but I, I need to first start with, there's a lot of, um, the world's kind of a mess right now. I mean, is that, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed. I mean, I read the newspaper and it's kind of a mess. Uh, so you, you're, you're, no, the, I, I, hadn't, I don't know I'm, if you have noticed this. I don't know what you're talking about, I don't know really. what you're talking about, you know. All seems to be going according to plan. <laughs> oh, no. So you, you work, you, your work at the Tony Blair Institute tries to address these, these big challenges. Um, there's, there's been um, some words thrown around recently, um, whether internationalism's a dirty word or globalism's a dirty word. What, is, what does it mean to be a globalist, if someone asks you that question? What does, what does that mean? Well, I, I don't know what it means to be a globalist, because I don't quite know what a globalist is. And, and usually that phrase is used by people who don't who don't like whoever yeah. they're describing as a globalist. Yeah. But you know, if, if you describe it as someone who believes it, that it's important for the West to be internationally engaged, uh, that believes that essentially globalization brings the world together and is a good thing, but of course you have to deal with its consequences and make sure its benefits are spread uh, fairly and justly, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm absolutely in favor of that. And I think it would be a tragic for the West and for the world if we sort of close down and start erecting barriers between nations again, because, you know, frankly, it won't work for a start. You know, I always say to people about globalization, it's not, it's not a policy decision that the G7 or G20 have made, right? It's driven by people. It's driven by technology. It's driven by migration and travel and the world coming closer together. And essentially, you know, if you take a step back and you look at human progress over the last 30 years, it's, it's been extraordinary in terms of the numbers of people lifted out of poverty. Actually, in Africa, that I know we're going to talk about you know, reductions of deaths from killer diseases, yeah. the progress that's being made there. But it's, it's, the world is changing fast, and this new technological revolution particularly is going to change it even faster. And so this is causing people anxiety, because they see the world changing around them, and they worry that they're losing control over it. And it's our task, and one of the things my institute now works on, is to say, what are the policies that you put in place that empower people and enable them to go with confidence into this future? Because the future is going to come. And the politicians who try and resist it and say, no, you know, we want to stop all the migrants and we want to you know, shut down international trade and all of this stuff, <laughs> this is not an answer, OK? And the two types of politicians in the world today, those who ride the anger and those who try and provide the answers, and it's better to try and provide the answers. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So, <laughs> anyway, you, you, you spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley. Just let's just talk a little bit more about this issue of technology, because we did a whole exercise here on the future of work. My colleague, Ramina Bandura, is a senior fellow here, spent a year looking at this. We looked at Kazakhstan, Nigeria, India, and Brazil, and how technologies, disruptive technologies, were gonna, were gonna change things. And, and there's certainly been a lot of angst and a lot of energy around this, especially here in, in, the, in, the, in, in, in OECD countries. How, do you, what, what, how, how should we be preparing for technology? Well, the answer is we should, it should be the focal point of the political debate, but the curious thing is it isn't. And that's one of the strange things about politics. Now, I should say, before I talk about technology, that my um, children always say to me that I shouldn't talk about it in public because they have a vast accumulated amount of evidence that I don't understand it. Like the but, interwebs or something right. like that? But actually, I do understand its implications. Um, and it is the 21st century equivalent to the 19th century Industrial Revolution, except it's going to go deeper and it's going to go faster. 
So for me, one of the frustrating things about the political debate, both sides of, of, of the Atlantic and elsewhere today, is that we should be. This is the topic because it will be enormously disruptive and obviously to yeah. the world of work, but at the same time, it will offer enormous opportunities. I mean, it can transform education, healthcare, actually transport. It can have a huge and should have a huge impact on the way that government functions. So this is a, this is a revolution. Um, and, you know, if you study the 19th century industrial revolution, it took politics a long time to catch up. Uh, and it would be a good idea if we didn't make the same mistake again and caught up now. And it really, so, you know, when you look at what is, what is the role of government today, the role of government should change both in terms of how it handles yeah. the technological revolution, but also in the processes of government itself. And this has also got a big, big part to play in the developing world. Because what I'm seeing increasingly is I, you know, we have about um, 14 uh, different countries in Africa with whom we have projects and teams of people on the ground, but also elsewhere. And everywhere I go now, there is an interest in what technology can do in the developing world, not just in the developed world. And one of the things that I would like to see is a much greater engagement between you know, the people who are the change makers and the people who are the policy makers. And this absence of dialogue and often a gulf of misunderstanding is a big problem. Because you know, if you look at technology and what it could do for education, healthcare, agriculture, yeah. in the developing world, it's enormous. But you know, we need to get into the right structured dialogue around it. I want to cover a couple more disruptions, and then I want to talk about how we create a politics of the center, which is something I know it's very important, to, I think, to, to your work, but I also think for the world. I want, to, I want to talk about migration. We did a whole exercise here on the forced migration crisis. We had a, a, a task force led by former Secretary of Homeland Security Tom Ridge and Gail Smith, who ran AID in the Obama administration. And there's something like 67 million uh, internally displaced people and refugees and asylum seekers around the world. We're experiencing this here on our southern border as part of this larger global phenomenon. I, I certainly have views about it, but I'd love to hear what, what should we be telling politicians, what do we tell publics about this challenge, and how do we, how do we address it? It's a, it's, a, it's a huge challenge, and it's upending politics everywhere. And, you know, frankly, I hope I might get through a, a day without mentioning the dreaded B word. Um, well, we're going to come back to that. <laughs> in British politics. <laughs> but um, the truth is, behind Brexit, was probably immigration as much as anything else is what drove the result. And if you look around the politics of Europe today, take Italy, for example, you know, the politics is being upended everywhere on this issue. And I think you know, there's an element of it that is obviously driven by dislike of immigration. But I think if we're being self-critical, there's an element of it that worries that we've lost control over the issue. And, you know, I think it's important to accept that some people feel um, not necessarily threatened, but they look at their communities and they think they're changing too fast and without their consent. So in my view, because I passionately believe that immigration is a benefit for a country, and indeed you only have to look at this country yeah. or indeed my own country to realize how much um, successive waves of migration have actually enriched our, our, our countries. And the data on that is absolutely clear. But at the same time, I think people do want to know there are rules and order. And my view is always with immigration. If you can't give people a sense of rules, you're at risk of getting prejudice. And the best way to handle and defeat the prejudice is to put in place a proper framework of rules. 
And you know, that's the debate I think that's, that's got to be had. And it's where you know, it's, it's not enough to dismiss these fears. You've got to, 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 to deal with them properly. But you know, this is the other thing we should be doing. And this is why the Global Development Forum is so important. You know, and Mohammed was mentioning the Sahel earlier. The Europeans, particularly, but also the world as a whole, should at this moment be devoting enormous focus and attention, resource, forward planning to the Sahel group of countries. I mean, that band of, of countries and the surrounding countries are at severe risk of destabilization. Uh, they have exploding populations, weak institutions. Um, poor development, radicalization elements there. So if you want to put together the most combustible elements you possibly can, they're there. That sounds now, like it. There is the Sahel Alliance, you know, the Sahel countries, the yeah. five of them are also trying to work together. But I don't think, and President Macron actually made a speech about it uh, this week, um, but I don't think there's yet the proper combined focus that there needs to be because this is the next wave of migration and extremism that is going to come to the shores of Europe, and we should be preparing for it now. My hope, uh, there's been some interesting research at the Center for Global Development saying that if you get to about $8,000 per capita, people stop migrating. My view is the ultimate goal is to have peace, stability, good governance, and development. That's easy to say from, a, from a, an ivory tower think tank. But it seems to me this is the sorts of, you know, you don't, we don't have waves of people coming from Panama or Costa Rica to our shores. And one of the reasons is it's something like $11,000 per capita in, in Panama. Now, that's a 20-year or 25-year project. But this is what I think we're talking about, I think. And we also, I think, have to see Africa and places like Central America as places not just as sources of problems, but as opportunities, as business opportunities. And I think we have to reframe some of the way we think about this oh, absolutely. challenge. Absolutely. Look, look, it's... it's one of the things that's very odd about politics is that sometimes things are completely, you know, bleeding obvious, <laughs> but yeah. politics doesn't really want to look, look the thing in the eye. And one is that, of course, you're going to get many more waves of migration from countries that have poor development. If people have opportunities back home, they'll take those opportunities. And by the way, it's interesting. If you look at the Eastern European countries and some of the migration from Eastern Europe into the UK over the last... Um, sort of 15 years or so has been one of the factors behind Brexit. But actually, irrespective of Brexit, the amount of that migration is reducing because real wages have gone up in places like Poland. You know, they're doing yeah. better as countries and therefore they're trying to keep their people in country. If you take, you know, there were massive waves of migration from, from the Republic of Ireland or from Ireland in the old days, but not today because it's a thriving, you know, economy and, and society. So I want to also talk about this other disruption, which is trade. So one of, my, one of the people I most admire from the Obama administration, Mike Froman, is here. And I think he did really tremendous work. He was, a really, he was really a great public servant, really worked on some important work on trade. But trade generates a lot of angst and a lot of energy. Could you just talk a little bit more about trade and how we should be thinking about that? Because many countries, what they don't want is an, a, a foreign aid relationship, especially as they move up the curve. What they want is a lot more trade and investment. Yeah, they, they, they do, and it's obviously one of the ways that development, the development agenda should shift is, is focusing on how they develop their own private sector, their own value chains um, in manufacturing and agriculture, and to get that two-way trade is absolutely essential. Um, look, the problem always with, with trade is that there's, there's no doubt about the facts. The more international trade and commerce there is, the better off the world becomes. But the beneficiaries of trade 
are, you know, unknown. Um, but they're, they're people, or, or they're people who will never realize that they have been beneficiaries of the world opening up. Whereas those that feel threatened by trade are very specific and know that they're threatened. So this is always the problem. This is where protectionist sentiment grows and, and has done all through the history. And if you look at the 1930s, when there was fierce protectionist sentiment both sides of the Atlantic, there's literally not a single academic writer who won't look back on that period then and say, well, that was a severe mistake. You know, why has why China lifted more people out of poverty than any other country in human history? Um, because it opened up. You know, without Deng Xiaoping and the you know, op opening up policy, we would never have had that. So there's no doubt about it that it works. Now, that's not to say there aren't trade issues that don't have to go on the table, and trade negotiations are complicated, often for very good reasons. Um, and, you know, the spat between America and China today has a, you know, leave aside yeah. all its consequences, but you can't say there's not a real issue that doesn't have to be tackled there. But in the end, it's important that we support the, the idea of multilateral trade negotiations because they're, you know, they will in the end produce greater prosperity for the world. How sh uh, China has gotten a lot more attention here in the last se several years. Could you just talk about how, how should... A, a U.S. senator said to me a couple months ago, he said, I, I don't know what winning with China looks like. And it's, I thought that was kind of an interesting way to frame it. It's a little, little, it's a little, it's a little simplistic, but it, it, it's a fairly complicated at the same time. How should we think about having a, a constructive but honest relationship with China? What, what should we be thinking about on the one hand? And how should we think of, it's become a major force in global development? I think, I don't know, there's maybe 80 countries now. It's the largest trading partner is China. They have the Belt and Road. They've set up the AIIB. Um, they're, they're, a, they're a major force uh, in the world. How, how should we think about them? We, we should think about them as a major force in the world and realize that it's absolutely inevitable that they are, and right that they are, by the way. I mean, the one thing we've got to be really careful of is not accepting the fact that the most populous country in the world, and now with the largest economy or the second largest economy, depending on how you look at it, I mean, they're going to be a major force. There's no doubt about that. And one of the reasons why I'm so much in favor both of Europe staying together and of Europe and America staying together is when you get to the middle of this century, if you just think about it, I mean, I've got uh, two small grandchildren now, and I think. By the time they're the age of my kids, you know, what's the world going to look like you know, when they're in their late 20s, early 30s? And essentially, if you take a step back and you look at the big picture in the world, there's going to be three giants. There's going to be America, China, and probably India. Right? And then number four, which are going to be, is a tall-sized country, is going to be still way, way, way behind those, those giants. So those will be countries like Indonesia and Brazil and Japan and Mexico and so on. Okay. Those are countries with populations, 100, 200 million, and so on. And then you're going to have the medium-sized countries. They're going to be France, Italy, Germany, Britain. Right? And you know, one of the things I will say to people back home is, it's just a reality. In a land of giants, you've got to come together. Otherwise, they're going to sit on you individually. Right? That's, just, that's what giants do. You know, and even though I'm a passionate believer in the relationship with America and so on, you know, Britain and America, okay, we are, do have a great relationship. It's important we keep a it's great important. relationship. But you know, America's a giant. You know, Britain's not a giant. But within Europe, you can sit at the table of yeah. giants, right? So this is why these, the, you know, how we then handle China is going to be probably the 
single biggest geopolitical challenge of the 21st century. And we've got to understand that China's got a different value system from us, yeah. and it's a different type of government. And that's, again, not necessarily a criticism, it's just a statement of fact. So the important thing is, in my view, we've got to deal with China from a position of strength, not from a position of enmity, because insofar as we can engage them and partner with them, we should. But we've always got to be strong, because they are a giant. And if they see weakness, they'll take advantage of it, because that's what giants do. So this is what is, what, what is important, I think. Now, when you come to Africa and the work we do yes. in Africa, you know, I think China's just a massive, uh, if I can use a somewhat uh, you know, vulgar British phrase, it's a massive kick up the backside for the West. <laughs> because I tell you what African presidents say to me the whole time. They say, we're trying to get infrastructure into our country because it's a vital necessity. Right. We engage with the West, and we engage with them. And then three years later, we're still engaging with them. And we're locked in this bureaucratic discussion, that bureaucratic discussion. We have the conversation with China, and we say we need a road from A to B, and the next day someone's there with a shovel. <laughs> That's the difference. So I think you know, there's many faults, by the way, in the way the Chinese can yeah. often go into a country. But you've got to understand from the receiving party, the great advantage is speed of decision and execution. And we've got to get far, far smarter and sharper I about agree. this in the, in the West. And you know, we've got to, I'm afraid, you know, be less in the box ticking mode and more in the how can we make things happen mode. And f for me, you know, because I think the African countries in time, by the way, will come, and I can see this developing already, they'll come to a more nuanced picture of China. You know, they don't want to be, they don't want to be, be a full-on, exactly. you know, vassal so, state of the you know, Chinese. I always say to them, you've got options, that's a great thing, but just make sure you keep options. And it's up to us also to be there alongside them. And, we we and have to up them. our game. We have to up our game. I, I liked your expression. I've used more think tanky terms like salutary wake-up call, but I actually think it's a, the, yeah. the, I, I'm going to use your term more. <laughs> that's better. It's a real wake-up call for the West. I'm giving you varying degrees of vulgarity. I, I love actually, varying but, degrees of vulgarity. Uh, I want to learn all of them. That sounds yeah. great. for Brit I want to learn all those British bad words. It's great. The, the, <laughs> the, but, but Mr. Blair, I think um, the, uh, one, one of the things I say is that if we don't meet the hopes and aspirations of countries, they will take their business to the Chinese. And I, th I worry that sometimes we're sometimes offering chicken or beef development because that's what our politics in the United States, United Kingdom find um, easy to deliver. And, what, and they want ice cream sundaes or they want Rocky Road or they want, a, I don't know, they want mac and cheese and we're saying we got chicken or beef. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm you confused following, about not that. Following but, that? I mean, no, I'm just saying, I you're not following the that? Picture. No, but he, here's, the, here's the thing, Dan, I think is really, really, <laughs> really, really important. But, what I mean is, sure is what, what, what those, I'm saying but, is, is yeah. we're saying, so we're, we'll say, okay, we've got a lot of health money for your country, and they say, I'd, I'd really like an airport or a road, please. And they say, well, we've got a lot of health money for your country, and they're like, I'd really like a road, please. And they'd say, well, we've got a lot of health money for your country. It's like, are you like, not listening to yeah. me? And that's what no, I'm trying to say. That's absolutely correct. But here's two things that we can offer, which are very important. But we need to sort of make sure that we are offering them. First of all, we do actually focus on the question of governance in the West. Yes. But I don't think we focus on it enough. I mean, I always say to people, the great difference, if you look around the world today, this is why my institute focuses on how you make governance more not just more honest, by the way, because honesty is one issue, but effective. You know, how do you actually deliver for your people? Because if you look around the world today, what is the big difference between the countries that succeed and fail? Yeah. It's the quality of governance. 
You, know, you can take two countries side by side with each other, same population, same resource potential, roughly the same opportunities and challenges. One succeeds, one fails. What's the, you know, what's the difference? You know, you take Colombia and Venezuela. Yeah. Okay. It's governance. Or you take Poland and Ukraine. Or you take Rwanda and Burundi. Or actually the greatest experiment in human, humankind's governance capability, the Korean Peninsula, North and South Korea. Right. What's, or or, or what's, tai, Taiwan even. I don't know. Yeah, you, you, you can go right across the piece and you can see the countries that succeed are the ones that, that develop the capacity to govern, institutions to govern. Now, we, we in the West, we can play a part in that. Rule of law, for example. You know, I, when I have my presidents, you know, the presidents I've worked with say to me, you know, how do we attract investment into the country? I say, okay, there's lots of different things you can do, but I tell you one thing you've got to do. They've got to know there are predictable rules that are going to be properly applied, and they're not going to be switched or changed at the whim of some bureaucrat or politician. Right. It's not complicated, and we can help you do that if you're willing to do it. So this is, you know, we can go in and we can help them build capacity. I think there is actually, I think this is, uh, you know, a, an agenda I know is, is close to the hearts of OPIC now and, and Mark Green at USAID. I think we can help with getting investable projects on infrastructure. You know, we, the, there is the capacity within the West to help those countries yes. put that together. And yes, the Chinese do work very fast on infrastructure, but sometimes, you know, in their speed, let's say certain things get left out of the equation. We could actually move into that space if we organized ourselves in the right way. And this is, you know, this is what is so important. So, Mr. Blair, I, I see you as not just a senior statesman in the United Kingdom, but in the West. And it's, um, we really, I really wish you were back in politics in your country. And I, I think, uh, you know, just get, I read the newspaper and I just sort of, I, as someone who believes in the special relationship, I just kind of scratch my head about what's, what's happening. I suspect if you read sometimes in our new, in the newspaper in your country and you look over here, you probably scratch your head about sometimes what's coming, going on here. But, but I guess, um, could you, could we talk about Brexit for a minute and what's that going to mean for, <laughs> so, sorry, but yeah. could we just talk about what is that going to mean for a global Britain because I think that the, the United Kingdom is going to have a different relationship with Europe, it's going to have a different relationship with the world, we still need the United, the United States absolutely still needs the United Kingdom, the, the world still needs the United Kingdom, Europe frankly still needs the United Kingdom. Um, and you, you all have so much to offer the world. What's it gonna, what is Brexit going to mean for the UK's role in the world? Yeah, well, it's uh, what you're telling you, comes one really interesting thing that happens when you get, um, if you're a politician in the West today and you visit any other country, you get into this interesting competition with the other, the other guy, which is whose politics is crazier? And, <laughs> You know, you say, no, no, mine is. And he says, no, no, mine is. And, but actually, ours is. Uh, no, no, no. We, we win this hands down. Um, because certain things can be temporary, but if we do Brexit, it's, it's a permanent thing. And, you know, it came home to me when I was, Mamadou was saying I was in Burkina Faso uh, last week, which I wasn't in other countries in West Africa. And I went to a country which is great country, but quite a poor country. And the president greeted me with the words, uh, I feel really sorry for your country. And I thought, mm, it's got this bad. Uh, so, um, but having, let me say two things. First of all, 
you know, we've now got the opportunity actually sensibly to consider the proper options on Brexit, yeah. and that's what will happen now that we have a greater space of time, because I won't get into all the details, but frankly, we have not properly debated the two forms of Brexit that are on offer, and they are the only two on offer. One is that you keep a, a close relationship with Europe's trading system, the single market and the customs union, because we've been there for four decades, yeah. and so many commercial and trade relationships have grown up on the back of it. You, that is what they call a soft Brexit, and the problem with that Brexit is, frankly, that it's a bit pointless if, if your reason for getting out of Europe is because you want to scrap all those rules. Yeah. On the other hand, if you do leave those trading systems, because of all the, the relationships you've built up, that is going to be painful. So you've got a choice between a painless and a pointless, um, painful and a pointless Brexit. And, oh boy. You know, so in any Those are horrible choices. There, there, there will, in the end, Parliament will make a choice. Yeah. And then the question will be, do they make a choice with a referendum attached to it or not? But, you know, one thing I, I want to make clear, what, you know, it is a mess at the moment. There's no disputing that. But, you know, Britain's a great country. It's a great people. We will sort our system out. Amen. I make you that commitment. Promise. We will, we will, in the end, get ourselves together and sort ourselves out. Whatever happens. We need you. We need you. <laughs> we need you, and we need the United Kingdom. <laughs> I'll relay this message Will you down. please send us back? back? I'll go. I'll be talking to my mate Dan in D.C., and he's told me. So, come on. Uh, no, we will. We will sort ourselves out eventually. And, you know, look, Britain is a, an important global player, and we've got to keep that way. Absolutely. Um, and whatever happens, and I really mean this, I mean, I'm passionately opposed to Brexit, as you know. I know. But even if we do it, we will still be back okay. on the world stage and t playing our part. So don't uh, write us okay. off yet. Oh, we absolutely won't. Okay, Mr. Blair, thank you so much. Would you please all join me in thanking Mr. Blair? Thank you very much. Wow. I'm so grateful. Thanks for your partnership. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, um, I've got um, two friends of mine are going to join me on stage. Where, where are we, we're doing this. Um, I want to have uh, my friend Ambassador Mark Green and my friend Jim Richardson come on up. Um, that's a hard act to follow, guys. Sorry. Um, the um, the uh, he's just he's the best. I've got I've got um, I'm just a great admirer of his, and um, I, I think a lot like a lot of Americans. I just think. Uh, I'll never forget that he showed up on the 20th of September uh, 2001, and I think um, it really, uh, I, I'll never forget it. Um, so I'm, but I'm really, really pleased Neither to have Iraq. Ambassador Mark Green, Administrator Mark Green, and my uh, friend, the uh, Assistant to the Administrator for P Policy Planning and Learning, uh, Jim Richardson. We're here to have a conversation uh, around the new USAID policy framework. That's a big deal in USAID speak. I know they'll explain what that means on ending the need for foreign assistance. They're rolling it out here today. Um, and this is in the context of the journey to self-reliance. And, um, you know, I think 
AID is very, very fortunate to have one of the most able public servants in the Trump administration in the form of Ambassador Mark Green. I think everybody in this room knows it. I think everybody at AID knows it. I think everyone in the development community knows it. So, I Ambassador always say, Green, I, I'm the devil that you know. Uh, you're the devil. <laughs> you're the devil that we know, and we're glad that you're there. We're glad that you're there. So, so what, what, what? Why, why did you do this? Why did you all put this together, Mark? Tell us well, well, first off, you're right. Tony Blair is a difficult act to follow. It's a difficult act to follow. Uh, and I'm a great admirer of his work and, and actually was briefly with him in West Africa last week. And, and so many of the things that he's trying to do are very much in line with uh, what we're talking about here. So, uh, you know, first off, I think almost all of us who are brought into the work of development are driven by personal experiences. And that's very much the case for me. I lived in Africa a couple of times in my life. Uh, I started off as a teacher in Kenya more than 30 years ago now. And uh, you know what I learned on the village level is really what inspires us. And, and so when I was a teacher, we had no electricity, we had no running water, we had one textbook for every dozen kids. But I point out to people the entire time that I lived there in that village, not once did any of my students or their families ever ask me for money. <sighs> they might ask for extra lessons. They might ask for help with books. They were never looking for a handout. They were looking for tools to help them get ahead. Very inspirational to me. Flash forward to my, uh, my days here at USAID. Uh, my first trip as administrator was to the Horn of Africa. And I remember going to Ethiopia, which was then in the throes of four consecutive years of drought, um, but had not quite fallen into famine. I was attending a food distribution that we were doing there. And I remember a, a wonderful lady who had just received that sack of grain that she was about to take back to her home. And she pulled me aside and she said, I have a question. And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, first off, thank you for the grain. We need it. We're hungry. Question is, can you help us with irrigation so we never have to do this again? That's the spirit that we're trying to bring to bear in the journey to self-reliance mm. and the framework. It is the notion of human dignity. It is the notion of, of every family wanting to build their own bright future. And we believe, uh, as uh, the lead agency in development, as Americans, that that notion is cooked into our DNA. So what we believe is where a country is, is taking on the tough choices and doing the difficult things that they need to do to become self-reliant and hopefully prosperous, well, we should walk with them along the way. And the policy framework is the connective tissue between that notion and the actual work that we do day in and day out. What does it actually look like in development yeah. speak, as you put it, what does it actually look like as we take on challenges, as we work with our country partners? So that's the, uh, the purpose of the framework, and I'm uh, delighted to be able to unveil it here. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm um, uh, proud of our friendship, but Thanks. also the service that CSIS provides here in town of fostering discussions. I think it is uh, an irreplaceable addition to what we do. Thanks, thanks a lot. I, I want to, you know, I, I've, got a, I've got a simplistic, uh, maybe a simple, I don't know if it's simple or simplistic, I guess it's a simple theory of change. We've got sort of 70 countries going the way of South Korea, and then you've got 30 hard 
fragile and conflict-affected states, and that those two sets of countries have different sets of needs. My, my view is the, the 70 or so, what they want is science, they want technology, they want trade, they want infrastructure, the kinds of health needs they, they, they experience are different. It's not necessarily communicable diseases, it's things like obesity or car safety or diabetes or cancer. Uh, but then you've got these fragile and conflict-affected states where we just, sure. it's just very, very challenging. So how, um, how are you thinking about some of the countries that are on their way or close to, 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 um, to making, you know, to, to ending? I mean, I think of the, the ambassador of Kazakhstan is here, and I think Kazakhstan doesn't get a lot of, uh, uh, enough credit for the, the economic progress. There's some, certainly some, you know, there's a number of challenges, including uh, political challenges in, in Kazakhstan, but I think, but there's also been some changes there too. But there's something like $14,000 per capita. I mean, so these kind of, you know, country like that that doesn't, you know, is, doesn't really have a sort of an aid program anymore, but you've got a series of countries like that. How, how are you thinking about countries that are sort of either about to end sort of a needing assistance? How, how are you thinking about that? And I'm sure it's, it's embedded in here, of course. Well, there, there are, I think, two, two broad forces uh, here. First off is what I think is the universal uh, principle or, or notion, and that is, uh, that the purpose of what we do must be ending its need to exist. So yeah. foreign assistance is uh, a tool, but it is just that. Again, every country wants to lead itself. Nobody wants to receive no. uh, assistance. Uh, it is a necessary evil, if you, you don't want to put it in those terms, but we want to end the need for foreign assistance. So that's the universal. But uh, in this journey to self-reliance that we talk about, every country is in a different place. We have to understand as, as their partner where they've come from, where they are, and where it is that they're going. And so we at USAID, working with you, other external stakeholders, as well as, as our own experienced professionals from, from all around the world, have developed, pulled together 17 independent metrics that we call the roadmap in the journey to self-reliance measuring uh, capacity and commitment of each country in the sectors that, in which we work so that we can together have a conversation with our partners about, again, where they are and how it is that we might be able to be helpful. So that's how we, we look at doing things country by country. But the other overlay that you put uh, on it, which I think is the great challenge that we face, uh, is we have about 70 million displaced people yeah. in the world. People are not where they were. They're mobile. Uh, they're vulnerable. They are in fragile states and post-conflict states. They are in, in very vulnerable settings, and that's a significant challenge for us. How do we help people not only as part of that journey to self-reliance, but how do we help people stay connected to the world around them? Uh, you know, we've talked about it. Yeah. When people ask me what it is that keeps me up at night, it's the fact that we have children being born in camps in, in, uh, in, you know, in, these, yeah. in these communities growing up there. And somehow when the gates open up and the fence comes down, we expect them to be connected and constructive in the world. And I worry that we're falling short, that we're simply not able to do that as we should. So we try to go country by country, understand where they are, and, and look for ways to help. But the overlay is also trying to grapple with these larger forces that I think are disrupting so much of what it is that we seek to do. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Yeah, please, Jim. I mean, we really want to make sure that at every country, 
at the low capacity, low commitment spaces or at the higher levels of capacity and commitment as you talk about these countries that are off much further along in the journey to self-reliance. We need to make sure that our programs are aligned to where they are. So we want to make sure that we are looking at each one of those metrics, understand where those countries are, and then make sure that our programs speak exactly to them. Because at the higher level of commitment, as you've said, they need trade, they need private sector yeah. engagement. And our programs should not look the same in high capacity and, and low capacity countries. So making sure, and that's what the framework really lays out, uh, with really great evidence, uh, really great theory of change, but really lays out how do we m make sure we are thinking about countries uniquely on their journey so that we are better partners to them. So, Ambassador Green, I just want to recognize uh, you're very fortunate to have Jim Richardson as your assistant administrator for PPL. And I know you've got a great team because I worked a lot with your team, Jim. and. This is really an enormous amount of work has gone to this. What, could you just spend just a minute for our television audience here? Uh, what, what, is, what is a policy, why is, what is a policy framework? Why is that such a big deal, Jim and bureaucrat speak? And what is the signal, what is the signal you're trying to send both to your stakeholders represented here, but also what's the signal you're trying to send to your, your country partners and also to the USAID team? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, um, I don't think I've ever been called bureaucrat before, so this is this is I'm coming from a moment. place of love. I'm coming uh, from a place really of love. I don't bureaucrat speak, <laughs> but what a policy framework does is, as the administrator says, it's the connective tissue between the big idea that the administrator charged the agency with. He said on his, on his testimony to become the administrator of USAID at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee almost two years ago, he said, we're here to end the need for foreign assistance. Yeah. So we, for the past year, we have really said, well, what does that really mean in terms of our programming, in terms of the evidence, in terms of the types of programs we need to create, in terms of our approach to private sector engagement, in terms of our approach to financing self-reliance, all of these, in terms of our country strategies, what does this all mean? How, do, how can we put this in a, in a way that our staff understand it, mm -hmm. um, that, our, that our partners understand mm -hmm. it, that our partner countries understand it, and other donors understand okay. it. So it really just helps it sync it together. It's, a, it's based on um, solid evidence. It's really, that's a really piece, important piece of this, uh, but real, lays out the real clear cause. And, uh, so, so I did a, a, an exercise in 2012. Actually, I think my friend Amasya Zargarian's in the back, and he helped me, us do it. We did a, a report called Strategic Foreign Assistance Transitions. And we looked back over 40 years. We looked at South Korea. We looked at Tunisia. We looked at one of the, I think it was Croatia. I think we looked at one of the Baltic states. And we looked at Costa Rica and we looked at Portugal. And in each instance of when we, dis, when we knew we had ended foreign assistance, it was in essence a political decision. There wasn't really sort of an Excel spreadsheet where we sort of said, okay, well, we, we kind of knew. It was sort of like, and I think there's a graduation policy at the World Bank. Graduation is sort of a dirty word at the Inter-American Development Bank. That's like you just don't ever, it's never to be discussed ever. So. How do, you think, how do you think about when a country, and, and I can remember when, when Administrator Green was getting ready to, we, we put some memos together for you of sort of my, 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 my dirty dozen of countries that I thought could, could experience some kind of a change. How are you thinking about when a country is ready to graduate? How are you, how are you thinking about that? And how are you thinking about what, what we leave behind? Because it's probably not the best idea for us just to say, hey, thanks for the memories. Here's a telegram. You're a real country now. Flap your wings. It's, it's got to be something more like, hey, what we did in other places like in, North, in, excuse me, in South Korea, we set up a whole network 
of institutions to enmesh ourselves with, with South Korea. In Costa Rica, we set up uh, something called CRUSA, which is uh, education scholarships. In other places, we set up enterprise funds or used enterprise funds. We used endow set up uh, sinking funds or, or joint found bi binational foundations. How are you thinking? So, how are you thinking about when you're going to graduate a country? If, if, if we're, going, we're going on this journey when it ends, and what are we going to leave behind so that we have some kind of a, a different kind of a partnership? Because I want to make sure that we're sharing in the upside of these of these upside countries. I mean, 11 of the 15 largest trading partners in the United States has our former recipients of foreign aid. You know, I think we're going to have a lot more former recipients of foreign aid wanting to do a lot more trading with us. So how are you, how are you about thinking about these issues? Well, first off, uh, I also don't like the term graduation because it, it sort of uh, it is like it's an event and a light switch going yes, on and off. Yes, yes. Instead, it's listening to our partners and having constructive conversations. It's what they want. So to me, when you take a look at those metrics on that journey to self-reliance, what you do is you look for the part of the journey where it's time to have some conversations. Every country that I know is looking for investment, is yep. looking for private enterprises, looking for vibrancy and, uh, and being able to create jobs for their young people. So it's sitting down and finding ways for what that next phase in the discussion will be. So, uh, you know, strategic transitions as we use it, it's not graduation, it's not leaving, it's not departing, it's a new relationship, mutually beneficial, yep. that creates opportunities, uh, creates and enhances commerce. We want countries to go from being recipients to partners to donors, that's, that's the model. So as we get into that conversation, we start to look at ways of helping them accelerate investment so that there is more economic growth. And also, quite frankly, we ask for their help. We ask for their help regionally. We ask for their help with other countries in need. So I look at a journey as a long-term relationship. It's not something with a definitive beginning and end. Instead, it is a long-term relationship in which we build the kinds of coalitions for good that we have always seen. It is no accident that USAID grew out of the Marshall Plan. Yes. And that's the way that we look at things. We look at things in terms of building a coalition for good, of shared values, of looking for ways to build it by enhancing opportunities for our partners, and again, uh, creating more and more donors for the challenges that are there in the world. Can I both ask, or do you want to just yeah, yeah, let me just, so I think the metrics, and the administrator um, mentioned this, the, the roadmaps, they really help countries understand where they are. It helps us understand that, yeah. too. So this idea of, of getting greater capacity and commitment to the point that a strategic transition can happen won't be a surprise. And that's really important that it's not a surprise to anybody that our partnership is evolving. And then we want to make sure we're revamping all of our country strategies and all of our countries over the next 18 months. And what that allows us to do is in these countries that are closer to the point of strategic transition, we should start planning now for over the next five years or yes. so, how do we transition the relationship over the course of the five years so that it post, post that country transition, yeah. that'll be, that'll be. You know, let me offer a couple of thoughts here. Uh, again, I, I've lived in Africa a couple yeah. of times in my life, and I found it interesting when we started this process, started to craft this framework, um, how many 
uh, made assumptions that were inaccurate. How many in the, in the broader political community and development community? People got really nervous when we started talking about a journey implying that, that countries needed to do things. And, uh, uh, or the notion that countries would be self-reliant. And I said, well, you ever actually lived in the developing world? Have you actually ever spoken with people who are striving to rise? I think we are too often in the development community unintentionally patronizing. I think it's true. We treat uh, countries and people and communities as though they're hopeless and helpless. Instead, what we try to do is say, look, we're partners. We each have things to give. We each have things to provide and can come together for mutual benefit to help uh, create, uh, again, more of the coalition of shared values. Uh, on the roadmaps, when we first started putting these together, we had some people who would say, well, you, you can't do this. <laughs> I said, well, why? And they said, well, because some countries are lower on the roadmap. And I said, well, we, yeah, that's actually true. I said, but they're going to be offended. I said, really? I don't think so. I think I it's time to have grown-up conversations with our partners and say, look, we don't have all the answers. We've probably made all the mistakes. You don't have to make, make the mistakes that we have made in our own history here in the States. We want to walk with you to help you rise. I think when you have conversations like that, I think when you have a framework that shows that it's tied to metrics and our experience and what countries are looking for, those are great and productive conversations. I, I, I think so too. I, I agree with you. I, I've been to probably 80 countries in, in, my, in my career in international development. I've never met anybody in a, in a country in international development that says, boy, I really would like to just continue to be, to have more foreign assistance. What I'd really like, I, I, every country I've, I've, I've been to says, I aspire to be a middle-income country. I aspire to be a prosperous country. I have hopes and aspirations for my society. Um, and are you helping me meet those hopes and aspirations? That's really, right. that's really what implicitly the conversation always is. It's never any different than that. Yeah. Just my, my bumper sticker here has been, it's not your grandparents' developing world. It's richer, it's freer, it's more capable with more agency, it's healthier, and it's got a lot more options than it used to. And if we don't meet the hopes and aspirations, as I said earlier, they will take their business to the Chinese. Mm -hmm. So we, I think this is very helpful that, that we're using a framework like this. I, I want to turn to Africa. Uh, Administrator Green, you were, you were an Africanist in Washington before Africa was cool, if I can put it that way. I mean, you served it as a volunteer with your wife, and then you were ambassador to Tanzania. You've had, you have got long, you have family DNA connectivity to, to Africa in a, in a profound way. Um, there's, uh, the administration is, is, got a, uh, is in the process of, it has a new policy called Prosper Africa. It's clear to me that that AID is going to ha have to be the lead agency on, on doing any of the kind of work on Prosper Africa. How does Prosper Africa to fit into this, this conversation? How do we think about um, economic development and trade and, and thinking about win-win for our relationship with Africa? Because I, I suspect it's related to this discussion. Yeah, and in some ways I think you answered your own question. So as we take a look at this framework, Prosper Africa becomes a, a tool in the framework to accelerate uh, two-way trade yeah. and the investment. It is the recognition that um, many countries in Africa are hungry for private enterprise and the kinds of investments, uh, I inclusive investments, investments that create real opportunities for people and in, in, in bolster the, the common good. They're hungry for it. 
with Prosper Africa, we have an intense focus in those opportunities. So it's opportunistic, it's nimble, it's taking the range of tools that we have in economic statecraft and applying them to opportunities in ways that we think can produce, quite frankly, rapid wins that are mutually beneficial. How does this fit into the larger uh, U.S. foreign policy objectives? I think certainly Prosper Africa is one of those, but how does it fit into others that, that are, that certainly, that I'm, I'm sure this is, you, you, you obviously had to discuss this in the interagency and with the National Security Council. Well, and, and Prosper Africa is a product of the interagency yeah. And, yeah. and the National Security Council very much in line with what uh, Ambassador Bolton has talked about. So we know that countries that are growing, especially with inclusive growth, they tend to be more stable. They tend to be able to take on uh, challenges that emerge. Uh, so it is in our interest, as well as the interest of those countries with whom we partner, it is very much uh, part of our foreign policy toolbox it is uh, uh, broadening U.S. ties and broadening the spread of those values that are at the heart of who we are as a nation, but also in what we, we believe in in terms of the coalition. So I think Prosper Africa is a wonderful addition. We'll be formally uh, laying it out and launching it in coming weeks, but uh, I'm very excited about what it adds to the American presence in Africa. Great. Jim, other things you want to add? No, I mean, I think it's, it's the, the policy framework is really a flow down of the national security strategy, the joint strategic plan, the, the sort of the planning documents of the, of the Trump administration. Um, but it really is a, a development document. It really uh, sort of looks not just from the top down, but also from the bottom up. How do countries are trying to think about their own journey to self-reliance? What are their true challenges? Looking at the opportunities for private sector growth, looking at other competitors in this space, and the fact is the, the donor community like the United States and, and Europe and Japan and Australia are not the only players anymore. That, that China and Russia are a growing power and they have a very different vision for the developing world than we do. So how do we make sure that we are being strategic and thoughtful about our engagement uh, in, in countries all around the world? So, so I've got, um, I know you, uh, we're running out of time, but I, I've got a couple of, of, of bumper stickers for both of you that I, I hope you'll take back as you, as you in, in implement this policy. I think one is the issue of, of endowed foundations, thinking about how and where you can use endowed binational foundations. I think of Brazil as a place. Um, that we need to have a new and deeper long-term relationship. India is probably another where we're going to need something that looks like a German Marshall Fund for Brazil, a shared German Marshall Fund fund for Brazil, a shared German Marshall Fund fund for India. Um, I also think we should be thinking about new enterprise funds for certain regions. I certainly think we need one for the Northern Triangle. There's probably several other places that that could help accelerate change, and so. Put, please put that in the inbox of things to, to look at. But I'd also just say that um, uh, higher education, wherever I go to a country, as they move up the curve, they want to talk about, and, and AID has these deep networks of relationships. They want to deepen their education, their own education system. Um, I'm on the board of an African university called Ashesi. We're going to probably need 100 Ashesi universities. So think about what we could be doing in the higher education space, not just with American higher education, but think about that. And then how do we, how do we finish the trade facilitation agreement and fully fund that? That's hard to get money for. I know you guys also are the keepers of that. So 
maybe some homework assignments for, for AID <laughs> from, from your friends here at CSIS. But look, it's really important. I sleep better at night knowing that both of you all are on the job at AID. And I know everyone in the development community know, feels that way. I know everyone at AID feels that way. So we're here to help you. And please join me in thanking my friends at AID. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Okay. Jim, thanks a lot, pal. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Okay. Okay, this is sort of like the marathon plenaries. I, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it, we're just, we're going from, we're jumping from one, we're gonna go, I'm gonna ask my new, my next set of victims to come up. We're gonna have, a, we're going a plenary panel, moving beyond foreign assistance, and I'd ask my friends who are speakers, and, and uh, Chris, can you help me with the, we have enough seats? Yeah. So, scene change. Okay, so we're gonna have a, we've got a, a plenary panel with four really interesting people um, and all people I like, um, which is really tremendous. Uh, Mike, sit next to me. Um, and uh, so, I, as I said earlier, uh, Mike Froman is one of my, one of the heroes of the Obama administration, someone I really admire and I'm really happy is here and I think did really tremendous work in the Obama administration on trade and, and actually on development issues as well. Um, and then um, uh, uh, Stephanie, Stephanie von Friedberg, who is the COO of um, IFC, the International Finance Corporation, not, not the Independent Film Channel, right? Exactly. Right, okay, just checking on that, okay. Um, Alexander de Croo, you're the Deputy Prime Minister of Belgium, and you're also the Minister of Finance. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Uh, and then um, my friend, Mamadou Bey, who's a senior leader at Chevron and is a friend of mine and a friend of CSIS's, and thanks for being here. Yep. Um, we're gonna be uh, talking about moving beyond foreign assistance, and what I really wanted to do is each of these people here represents different perspectives on how change is going to happen in the developing world. We've had, I think, uh, Mr. Blair provided a, a pretty a good global context for this discussion, and in some ways, uh, Administrator Green provided a, a framework about how AID, one actor, is thinking about how their theory of change and how they want to see change happen. But I thought it was important to have a variety of other perspectives to talk about how they see change and progress and prosperity happen. I was looking at Chevron's website and, and in their corporate responsibility and how they have this, the, the concept of building prosperity. I think that's great since um, I, think that's, I think that's a great way to think about it. But also I looked at um, the, uh, the Belgian website, uh, the foreign ministry's website, and uh, issues of inclusive growth are, are central to how Belgium thinks about Development, the, the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. That you, you're the, you're the, the, you're not only vice chair of MasterCard Corporation, but you also oversee the Center for Inclusive Growth. And I think it's fair to say, Stephanie, that inclusive growth is a way to think about what IFC does on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think we've got some interesting perspectives here. So let me let me start um, with uh, Ambassador Froman. Um, so you've had some really interesting roles. You were a U.S. trade representative for President Obama. You were also at the National Economic Council. Um, you, uh, one of the things we've talked about in move, most countries I've been to, and I'm sure you've been to, what they want is not necessarily assistance. They want to have more trade. They want to have investment. You are the architects of the Trade Facilitation Agreement. Can you just talk a little about what is the Trade Facilitation Agreement? Why is that important? Um, and why, how, why should the United States care about the Trade Facilitation Agreement? Well, first of all, thank you, Dan, for having us. And I think it's just a, a great tribute to you 
to John Hamry to CSIS for being able to convene, you know, not just Tony Blair and Mark Green, but this is a remarkable audience here, both in, in size and, and quality. And it's, Thank uh, you. it's great that you, that you have really driven this agenda here in, in Washington in the way that you have. Um, I'll say a word about the Trade Facilitation Agreement, which was uh, one of the few agreements that came out of the WTO in the last uh, uh, decade. 164 countries agreeing, and it was a remarkable coming together of developing countries and developed countries to recognize that if we could just reduce the tensions and the frictions at the borders um, to make things easier at a port, to make it easier to bring goods in and out of a country, that you could have tremendous impact on growth. And in fact, developing countries saw this as, as even more important than developed countries because they knew that they had more to benefit uh, from it. And it, it goes to the point that you were just raising in the previous panel about trade and aid and, and some of the conversations we had at the beginning of the Obama administration about putting economic growth and private sector-led trade and investment at the core of development policy, which is that ultimately uh, there's not enough foreign assistance in the world to address all of no. our problems. We've got to get the private sector aligned with development. And one of the easiest ways to do that is by promoting trade and investment and taking down these barriers at the borders are a good thing, uh, a good way to start. I saw a statistic, there was a study that said that if you could unclog um, the, the, the borders and customs, there's something like a trillion dollars more trade, half of it for countries like the OECD countries, wealthy countries, and half for poor countries, and 20 million jobs could be created around the world. I mean, I, I think that's, and it's, I've seen numbers where it's not that expensive to actually do the fixes that are needed at borders. This is not, we're not talking enormous amounts of money per country. It's 15 or $20 million I've seen the World Bank use those no, it's statistics. A, it's, it's absolutely right. I mean, those, the trillion dollar figure is one that was put out there around the, the time of the negotiation. And uh, I think a lot of good work has been done in places like East Africa and, and places like Central America where it may have taken in East Africa 30 days to get a, a container from the port to through the country to the next border and now it takes uh, uh, five or six days and yeah. by just eliminating roadblocks uh, making customs procedures at the border uh, easier and I think there's an important role for the private sector to play um, I know uh, I was I was delighted when I arrived at, at MasterCard to learn that they had been working on a product that's really about making it easier to do trade for small medium-sized businesses to join global supply chains by just again taking a lot of the friction out of the system. So I think there's a role both for the public and the private sector to play. There's, um, I want to come back to the, 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 what you're doing now because um, there's some really interesting things that you're doing at MasterCard and, and what the financial services sector is doing or could be doing to, to enable, enable prosperity and enable hopes and aspirations for people and, and businesses. Let me just push just a little bit further in your, your last life. There's a, this, I don't know if this is an apocryphal story and so you can tell me if I'm, I'm wrong. I, that You made a trip to Africa and that it was what prompted the Power Africa initiative. Is that true? Well, it is true. And I see Earl Gast here in the, uh, in, the, in, in the audience. He was part of that trip. We had an interagency delegation, and we, uh, we took a, a couple weeks to travel uh, various parts of Africa. And, and one day, we were out in the Rift Valley in, in Kenya, um, and we saw the, you know, the plumes of geothermal energy coming out of, the, uh, out of the ground. We went to visit a couple geothermal plants. And the first plant we went to was run by a U.S. company. It had two expats, and everybody else was Kenyan, from the engineers to the janitors. And then we drove a few miles down the road to another plant that was run by the government, and it was 100% Chinese workers. And we came back and said, you know, just to the point of, of, of your conversation with Tony Blair, we may not be, we may not be prepared to 
produce a lot of roads in Africa. We're not going to be the, the big construction company in Africa, but our companies are interested and capable of investing in energy generation and transmission and distribution. And uh, we went to the president and uh, talked to him about this and committed uh, to mobilize private, both public and private sector investment to double the electrification in Africa. And I think uh, the government has made quite good progress uh, it's been a bipartisan time. commitment. Bipartisan. I think it's continued on in this uh, in this administration, um, and I think there's still ways to go. But I think we've seen the energy of part of the pun, the energy of the private sector, uh, <laughs> generated it, it, to to be applied and be willing to invest in this area. So you, you so let me fast forward to your new life. So you're now vice chairman at Mastercard. You you all have done uh, you, the concept of inclusive growth, financial inclusion, or are sort of words that I think are ways to, for you to frame the way you think about opportunities. You also, you've got a growing middle class in many parts of the world, including in Africa. Uh, it's probably fair to say that MasterCard sees Africa as an opportunity. Um, just how, talk a little bit about your, your current life and talk a little bit about what MasterCard's doing in, the, in this context. Well, look, I, I think uh, the, the context is really some of your prior conversation, which is, again, not enough foreign assistance to the world, not enough philanthropy in the world and not enough CSR activity in the world to really address the challenges that we face. Th 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 those aren't going to be enough to make enough. the They're changes. They're all very important. They're all yep. critically important. All very important. Um, but if we're going to meet the SDGs or whatever goals we have for ourselves, it's going to be because we mobilize the, the resources, the motivation, the innovation of the private uh, sector. Um, and I was delighted when I got there to learn that, for example, six years ago, we created a Center for Inclusive yeah. Growth, sort of a thought leadership area in this area. We committed a few years ago to bring 500 million new individuals and 40 million new micro-merchants into the financial system. And we manage that just like any other part of our business. We've got goals, we've got targets in, by region, by country, by program. We're about 380 million towards the 500 million goal. And so we take it very seriously. Um, I think the key thing is, again, it, 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 we're only going to be able to do this if we can have commercially sustainable social impact. The only way we're going to scale these solutions is if the private sector can do so on a commercially sustainable basis, and we're committed to exploring that. And so we've got uh, uh, Tara Nathan is here somewhere yeah. in the audience. She runs our yeah. humanitarian and development uh, business. You know, we're working with Gavi to um, help put uh, parents who are taking their kids in to get vaccinations uh, to create an electronic birth record and vaccination record. Uh, we're working with UNICEF in uh, Uganda to help families manage the payment of their school fees so they can keep kids in schools using our technology, using our, our, our cards or our rails, our, our encryption, um, uh, our tokenization. Uh, we're working with farmers to plug them into global networks and to uh, get subsidies from governments. Uh, we're working with micro merchants and, and, for example, Unilever and local financial institutions to digitize the relationship between that micro merchant and their supplier. Because right now, the, everything's in cash. You have no credit history. You can get robbed. There's you can get corruption. Robbed. It's actually expensive. Cash is expensive to, to manage, to keep, to guard, um, uh, to count, to deal with. And if you can create a digital economy where people begin to have a digital record, a local bank is willing to lend working capital. They'll buy more from Unilever, they'll sell more to their customers, they'll pay back their loan to the bank, you know, and we're just the organizer uh, uh, of the ecosystem. So we're experimenting with a number of these things and, and intend to scale them up precisely to have commercially sustainable 
um, social impact. And it's not as though we're going to make a lot of money off this sector, uh, far be it. But it's because we understand that, uh, again, to, to I think Tony's, uh, Belair's point, you, you, you either have thriving economies that are based on inclusive growth, um, or you risk having failed states. And we'll benefit, we'll thrive in an environment, in an economy that is based on inclusive economic growth. And so it's in our commercial interest to do this. And when we talk to the street, we talk to the markets about our commitment to inclusive growth, we, we took $500 million out of the, the tax cut benefit that we got. This is just recently. Uh, yeah, last year, and committed publicly to put it towards inclusive growth, including the creation of a, a MasterCard impact fund, a new philanthropy. And so, and, and, and our investors and our analysts all understood that and accepted it because it's, they can see that this is a long-term investment and something that makes sense for us commercially. So if I said to you blockchain, what, what, what's your reaction to the word blockchain? What is that? Well, I think, I think there's so, this is such an exciting area. There's so many innovations uh, in, the, in the financial services area and in the, uh, in, in the payment space. We're the third largest holder of blockchain patents. Really? After Google and, and IBM. So we, uh, we, we invest in it, we promote FinTech, we support FinTech companies. Um, you know, we, at this point, we don't see the, the, the commercial case for widespread deployment for it, but we're very much focused on and committed to continuing to experiment with it and seeing where it goes. Okay, so there's, there is promise to it. It's, the, the, it's, it's, it's got a, it's, it, we're going to be, well, five years from now. I think we're early days. Gonna, I think we're early days. We're learning and we're all experimenting. We're in the first it. inning. First Absolutely. inning. All right. <laughs> Stephanie, thanks for being here. Um, the, you know, it's, it's really nice to have you here. Uh, the International Finance Corporation, I think, is a great force of good in the world. Um, so, you know, uh, my friend, I think my friend Peter Voike is here, is the former CEO of the International Finance Corporation. He's a senior advisor here, and so it's always nice to have Peter here. Um, I think we're really fundamentally transformed your organization when he led it. Um, but you, you, you all are a, a major force in the world. Uh, I wanted you to talk about what is the International Finance Corporation. Many of the folks in this audience know what it is. But I think it would be useful for folks to understand just a little bit of what is the IFC. It's not the independent film channel, as I said earlier, right? <laughs> but, but, it's, but also, how, how do you guys fit within the World Bank group? You've got a new strategy. Uh, we've written a lot about development finance institutions here at CSIS. We're, uh, and I think we're, we're very synced up with your new strategy. So talk a little bit about that. Um, there's a lot of change going on at the World Bank Group. I don't know if anyone's been reading the newspaper recently, but I, th I think there's been some changes. So, so um, I'm sure it's super boring right now in your job. And so tell, tell us about the IFC and tell us what you're up to. Okay. First, Dan, thank you very much. Dan and I have known each other for years. Actually, he used to work at IFC. Yeah. So he knows what we do. Yep. Um, but, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, so, in, uh, the World Bank was founded in 1945, after uh, the end of the Second World War. And in 1956, uh, driven by the Americans, 12 countries got together and said, maybe there's a different way for us to think about development. Maybe what we actually need to do is think about the development of the private sector um, in emerging markets and in these countries of operation. And so they came to gave us, they gave us a $500 million and we founded IFC. Um, and it, our very, 1956. Yep. Um, so our very first loan was to help Siemens make an investment in Brazil. And we really call that our IFC 1.0. So in essence, what we were doing was helping very large multinational companies gain footholds in, in emerging markets and in countries of operation. And our business grew very steadily. And then 
Um, it started to flatten out, and actually right about the time that Peter joined, it started to flatten out. And we asked ourselves, okay, what's that next big wave of growth? So what we did was decentralize the organization. And we started to work very much with local companies, first in their own countries of operation, and then regionally as they grew. And again, you saw our business grow really considerably. Um, in about 2010, our business started to plateau. And as our business plateaued, um, the world came out with the Sustainable Development Goals. And we were in Addis together, and people said, how are we going to actually achieve the Sustainable Development Goals? Official development aid has been flat for the last 10 or 15 years at about $160 billion. There's virtually no way we will find the four to seven trillion dollars a year that's necessary to meet the Sustainable Development Goals unless we figure out how to crowd in all of the patient capital that's sitting on the sidelines, that's in low yield or negative yield uh, instruments today. And that was really the genesis of our new strategy, which was to say we are the private sector development institution who is global, who's been at this the longest, and we have a role in trying to figure out how to take that patient capital and crowd it into emerging markets. So what we've decided to do is really that two-pronged pillar. The first pillar of our strategy is to work much more closely with our colleagues at the World Bank and with other international financial institutions so that we are no longer just takers of projects. So sponsors don't just come to us, but rather we Sorry, what's a sponsor? So a sponsor is a, a client who wants to do a transaction in a particular country. Yeah. Um, so what we want to do is go upstream and say, where are the policy and regulatory hurdles that are preventing the private sector from investing in this country? So very much in line with what Ambassador Green was saying, look country by country and say, if we made these kinds of policy changes, we could create these kinds of private sector investment, which helps, again, on the path to self-reliance. Um, and then together with that, use our own capabilities to financially engineer new and interesting ways to crowd in um, patient capital. So to bring insurance companies, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds into our transactions and into these really large projects that need um, a lot more capital. So what, what percentage of your business today is in Africa? So Africa is a great question, Dan. I know. We've said I a know. lot about I Africa. I for a but living. I mean, I would actually start by saying that, you know, the war on poverty is going to be won or lost in Africa. And it has the largest, youngest, fastest growing population. We know, we've estimated that we need to create 1.7 million jobs a month in Africa. Between, a month? A month. 1.7 million jobs a month in Africa. Now in 2030 to employ youth as they come um, into job bearing years. Oh boy. And then, you know, I, I mirror that with, with, um, right. with technology. That's going to be, that's going to be a big a, that's job, a right? Big hill to climb. So when I, many years ago, I was in a, oh a internet cafe in Ghana and there were a hundred terminals or so, and five of them were dedicated to children. And I walked over and they were watching the same thing that my children were watching. And I had this kind of aha moment that was, you know, their aspirations and our children's aspirations are converging. Are the same. So we have a growing youth population in Africa whom we have to educate and provide jobs for. And if we don't, if we get it wrong, right? the 67 million people who have migrated will be a drop in the bucket. Oh yeah, we, we estimate, we did some, our forced migration report, we, we estimate it could double. We could easily, you know, I was at a, a, a round table yesterday talking about 
there are 3.5 million Venezuelans outside of the country. There could be more than that, and down, you know, e very easily, and you know, yeah. down, that's just one country. Yeah. Right? So Africa is a big focus of ours. Yeah. In 2003, we did about 168 million dollars worth of business in Africa. Um, now we do somewhere in the range of three to three and a half billion dollars a we year. Do three and a half billion dollars a year, a year of investments, new investments, new you investments make into in Africa. Africa. And our goal is to say by 2030 that we'll do 10 billion dollars a year. In 10 Africa. billion dollars a year by 2030. Okay. How many people do you have deployed into Africa now? So we have about 350 staff on the ground okay. um, in countries in Africa, okay. and a, a big portion of our people here in headquarters okay. focused on Africa. Okay, so OPIC, which is the, I'm, I'm a big fan of OPICs. I was a big uh, promoter and one of the folks that helped make the Development Finance Corporation happen has, I don't know if they have two folks overseas in Africa or four folks, and you have how many? 350? 350. So, okay, so we got a ways to go if we want to do more, well, just saying. So listen, the just Build saying, Act was right? a great change Good for thing. OPIC. Good the thing. Build Act was a really great change yep. for OPIC, um, and I think there's huge opportunities for all of us to partner. Yes, okay, and so, okay, so Africa's a big part of your future. It's, you know, when, but 25, 20 years ago, that wasn't the case, Correct. right? But uh, and, and in terms of, in how many, what percentage of your staff are overseas and not in Washington? Is it 50%? So the number's closer to 60, but it's if overseas. you actually look at operational staff, so yeah. staff that report into my um, vice presidency, yeah. it's about 70%. Okay, so you use all sorts of, I was looking at the strategy, there's lots of acronyms in your strategy. <laughs> yeah, you um, have to have a little it's dictionary It's part of the form. charm, it's part of the charm. <laughs> So IDA, FCS, I won't go through all of them. There was LTF, which I thought was better than, than some other, you know, you know the acronyms that, that could be, but, but I was like, okay. So the, and then there were some others, but, but okay, so IDA and FCS is the, is the phrase for complicated, challenging, poor countries for, for the World Bank Group. What percentage of your business is in FCS and IDA countries today, and where will it go? you know, by the time where you want to go. Where do you want to go? Okay. Let me take one step back. So after we created our strategy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we actually decided maybe we ought to look at our balance sheet and make sure we could deliver on our strategy. And one of the yes. things that was clear was we didn't have enough capital okay. to do what we wanted to is do. Is someone trying to send us a message? What is the, what's the <laughs> message they're trying to send Devon us? Yes. yes. So um, we set about coming, um, working with our shareholders for a capital increase. Okay. And last fall, we got a $5.5 billion capital increase. This and is for IFC. This is for IFC. And with that capital increase, we made some policy commitments. And one of the key policy commitments we made was that in those IDA and FCS countries, so the poorest countries in the world, okay. we would try to say that by 2030, 40% of our business would be in those countries. 40%? 40%. Okay, so that's a really big change. It's very hard. Is it, is it fair to say, Stephanie, it's very hard to do the kind of stuff you do in the poorest, toughest places in the world? It's, it's very expensive, but it's really important. It's very expensive, it's very hard, and it is the most important thing that we do. So this is a very big, it's a shift, and it's a big ask of your institution to do it, but you're only going to be able to do it if you get this capital increase to, to do the strategy that you're describing. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So right now, so luckily you have a new World Bank president, David Malpass, mm -hmm. who is a supporter of, there's a, been a capital increase for IBRD, another acronym, which is the, another part of the World Bank. Um, and then the United States agreed at IFC to sell a little bit of its shares to others in the IFC so that you could have this $5 billion capital increase at the IFC, is that correct? Yeah, so it's, it was an interesting conversation. If you, yeah. um, the IBRD as you refer to it, yeah. what is most people commonly think of as the World Bank, they've done multiple capital increases over the course um, 
of their life. Yeah. We had, haven't had a major capital increase 1991, since 1992. Um, and so we've only really had our founding capital, a capital increase in 1992. And that's largely because we um, have you been very successful um, in our equity investments and in being able to take our capital from our con contributed capital to $2.5 and growing that to $25 billion. And that's just really by investing in the right places in emerging markets, which is I think our way of saying it's risky, but there's opportunity. Okay, so I, I think the Trump administration has been good on the World Bank Group, and was David Malpass, who is now the, your new uh, World Bank Group president, led the U.S. process on the capital increase. Correct. And we were big supporters of helping him here, and we were big supporters of his candidacy for president of the World Bank Group, and um, I felt a little alone at times on that, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I don't have any regrets about it. Um, but I, there's, I'm worried that there's some disturbance in the force here in Washington about the capital increase. And so if there were, it's, so it's not coming from the Trump administration. So if you were in front of a, let's say, a committee on Capitol Hill, mm -hmm. and say a chair of one of those committees had concerns about a capital increase or had concerns about the World Bank Group saying, what would the case you would make to someone who had doubts about this? What would the case be that you would make to them about why this, I could, I could, I'd happy to make that case for you and I will make that case for you, but what is the case you would make to some folks who, who might, for example, be holding up a really important capital increase right now? So I think it goes back to um, how do we create shared prosperity across the world, right? And we're going to do that through private sector development, through economic growth and job creation. And in order for us to do that, we need our capital increase so that we can go to those most difficult parts of the world and create connectivity, create power. I mean, if we just look at Africa alone, um, Dan, there's only 13 countries in Africa that can generate enough baseload to have an industrial economy. It's 13 crazy. countries out of 49 in Sub-Saharan Africa. 60% of the people in Africa do not have adequate, they don't have connection to the internet. 60%. That's crazy. Right, so we have a lot of work to do, and if we're going to get it right, we need to be able to help, very much like Ambassador Green said, on a path yeah. to self-reliance. So I, I, when I think of the World Bank Group and I think of the work you do, I, I'd like to think you all are, are fairly transparent and like even overly transparent. I think you guys overly communicate. You put out a lot of stuff. You, you, spend a lot, you invest a lot on evaluations. You invest mm -hmm. a lot in trying to tell your story. What if someone said, well, I, I've got concern. I, if someone said I have transparency concerns, what's your response to that? I, I don't agree with that, but what if someone were to say that? What would your response be to that? So I think that we are held to a higher standard. And I actually think it's important that we are held to a higher yeah. standard. We have public money. We use public money to do, um, to do good and to do well. Um, and so I think it's appropriate that we are held to a higher standard. I think where people are beginning to ask questions has to do with this space of blended finance. So, um, and you guys have been major innovators in that. We have step. been, and, yeah. and you know, we talked about earlier about using philanthropy, we talked about using foundations, we talked about using grant money. What we've been trying to say is that there is a very interesting space that is a hybrid between grants. So you give a dollar and someone spends a dollar and you can actually leverage that money through blended finance. And I think there's some questions about is that blended finance money being used properly? Um, are 
are we actually creating or benefiting um, you know, large corporations who would otherwise be able to do this without that blended finance? I think if you look at the manner in which um, we've been using that blended finance, I would say it hasn't been used that way. You and I were talking about yeah, Afghanistan, yeah. right? Yeah. I know you love Afghanistan. I care about Afghanistan. So one of the places where we've used some of this blended finance, and it actually comes from, so again, another acronym, IDA is the um, part of the institution in the World Bank that deals with the poorest countries. And every three years, IDA does a replenishment. And in the last IDA replenishment, the governors decided that they would give IFC two and a half billion dollars for blended finance in these really poor countries. A private, so, the private sector window. The private sector window. Yeah. Um, and so what, in Afghanistan, so Afghanistan used to be one of the world's largest exporters of raisins. They have these little saltine raisins, little yellow raisins. Mm. Very, very tasty, really popular. Mm. Um, the ability to grow and process raisins fell apart. Um, and so we have found a company that actually wants to rejuvenate the raisin business in Afghanistan. They're going to promote farmers, they're going to help farmers, they're going to create jobs. Not viable on its own as a startup. So we use a little tiny bit of the private sector window, mm. some of our money, and we create a viable private sector company that can continue to grow and prosper. So those are the kinds of things that we're trying to do with the, with the private sector window. I think it's fair to say you, you, uh, one of the changes we need to have in the United States and in Washington is, is to see Africa as a major opportunity, a business opportunity. You, you okay. see Africa as an opportunity at IFC. Yeah. Talk about, um, just talk a little bit more about, some, tell, me a, tell me about how you're working with small medium-sized enterprises in Africa because I just think we have to do a lot. We need to. We need to be doing a lot more of enabling that kind of work. That 1.7 million jobs a month, just, that is a, that's a, that's a tall hill to climb. And if we don't have small, medium-sized enterprise, the kinds of things you're doing in Afghanistan, I'm sure you're doing that in, in, in Africa as well. Tell, tell, us, tell us about that. Yeah. So we really work across the gamut um, in Africa with SMEs. We, we start by lending, um, we create uh, lines to banks and allow the banks to on-lend to SMEs. So that's been our first reach. And then we have expanded that to say, can we have gender-related um, banking mm. lines? Can we have green banking lines? Can we have climate banking? Line. So we do a lot um, of our reach to SMEs through existing uh, commercial banks. But we know that's not enough. So um, we have created a series of um, educational tools. So we have a mini MBA, for example. So in the West Bank, mm. Gaza, we have trained thousands of women um, to, to get a mini MBA so that they can actually begin to run their company. We use our WeFi facility, which is, was originally funded by Ivanka Trump, and then 13 other countries came along with us to create those educational platforms for SMEs. And then on the other side, we're really thinking about kind of the unicorn digital SMEs, which is, are the fast-growing SMEs. So we have a Moonshot for Africa program, which is about building digital economies so that those entrepreneurs can begin to grow and thrive. And if you've ever been to Kenya, I know some people have been talking about Kenya, there are entrepreneurs. And you know, some of the first unicorns are going to come out of those countries. Great. Thanks, Stephanie. We, we ought to try and get the IFC its capital increase. So you've got my vote. Thanks, Dan. So, okay. So, okay. So, Alexander, thanks for being here. You're the yeah. deputy prime minister of Belgium. Thanks. Um, you know, talk about um, how you think about your your foreign assistance work. You're, I think you're on the board of governors also for the World Bank for Belgium. Um, you have a, a significant uh, foreign assistance program. You're primarily focused on 14 countries in Africa and some other countries as well. I'm really glad you're here. Thanks for being here.
My pleasure, and, and, and thank you for having the occasion to um, to talk a bit about about how we view development in the in, in, in the world. And I'd like to to pick up on a, on a few things that yes, have been said on, on, on the previous discussion and um, and, and here. Uh, maybe first of all on, on um, the number of jobs that needs to be created in Africa. It's 1.7 million, or it's 2 million, it's 1 million. It's it's a lot. Uh, one of the underlying drivers, of course, is is, is demographics. And uh, we've talked a bit about the SDGs. In, in my view, out of the 17 SDGs, SDG zero is controlling demographics. And uh, controlling demographics is something, I think, where we've been giving mixed messages. I mean, some of the decisions, for example, of this administration uh, to cut funding to organizations which are linked to family planning, I think are really detrimental. Mm. And, and I think we should more have an open discussion on this. I understand there's an ideological perspective to this, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I really think you should not underestimate the impact that this has. I mean, this is about young girls at the age of 12 not getting access to family planning. It's almost a question I could ask here to all of you. If you, between the age of 16 and 25, you would not have had access to family planning, would you be living the life you live now? Obviously not. I mean, family planning gives you the opportunity to love someone without having to marry someone, to enjoy another person without ending up with a baby uh, immediately. And we know that if a girl um, gets pregnant at the age of 12, it's the end of education, and it's the start of having on average seven or eight, or eight kids with all the consequences it has on poverty and on employability and, uh, and so on. And I think that a lot of the issues that we have we should also be able to, to work at the core. And, and working at the core is really try to master demographics. And we've seen that some countries have been successful at it. Mm. Rwanda has been tremendously successful mm. in doing it, and some other countries are still stuck at um, a fertility rate of, of seven. I mean, seven kids on average per woman, which means that for some of them it's actually much, uh, much higher than, uh, than, uh, than that. And, and, and I think that Honestly, I think that goes beyond ideology. I, I understand the thinking around this, but this is just basic development, uh, development policy, and controlling demographics is, is, is a key element. I think another point that, uh, that Mark Green said in the previous conversation, where he said, well, you know, we need to be able to have candid conversations with, with some of the partner countries we have. And, and, and I agree on that. We can develop a lot of innovative financial tools and we can do blending and we can use uh, technology and so on. In the end, if you do not have a partner government that is sharing um, the, same, the same goals as we would have, which would be economic growth, which is sustainable and which is inclusive, if you don't share that belief, we can come up with a lot of great innovative ideas. It's not going to go very far. And, and, and so you need partnerships in that. And I think we need to be much more candid in very often saying, look, we don't share the same, we don't share the same goals. Maybe we need to step, take a step back because we're not at, on the same page on that. What I think is important is that in that often more political discussion, I think that the World Bank and some other international institutions need to get a bit more political as well. I think mm. very often we are in, I mean, we are Belgiumism, Let's say, not a, let's say that we are a medium-sized country, mm. um, that um, very often we see that when we put, want to put pressure, it's quite hard when you see that World Bank, IFC, and others are not as political. And I think they can be more political 
And the way in the beha they behave politically is, is basically with the backing that we give them as, um, as partner, uh, partner countries. Um, maybe on, on business opportunity, yes, please. I, I, I agree. I mean, the African continent is one big opportunity based on the demographics which are there and based on the needs. People have gigantic needs. Now, the good news is if you look at the evolution over the last years, We've seen an evolution in how uh, globalism is working. I mean, globalization was, in my view, it used to be a one-way street. It's we create something in the Western world, and then we basically push it to the rest of the world. Our solution, you eat it. That has changed. It is not a one-way street anymore. Now it's a two-way street. In a lot of domains, really the place where the edge of innovation is, is not here. If we look at mobile payments, for example, we're not particularly good at mobile payments, but in Kenya we are, and in Bangladesh they are, and actually they are way beyond than we are. Uh, distant healthcare, it's the same. Distant healthcare, it's in Tanzania, it's in Rwanda, and, and, and so on. So you see that the, the, the hotbeds of innovation are moving away mm. to those places where the needs are higher, where you have a young population, where the access to technology, the threshold for access to technology has lowered a lot, and where solutions are being developed which are really tailored to the needs there. And there we need to be partners in that. And that is a reason why you see there's some anxiety in the Western world towards globalization, which is a bit odd, because we finally see the proceeds of globalization in the rest of the world are undeniable. I mean, the, the positive impact of trade, democracy, and investment, it's, it's mind-blowing what is happening in the rest of the world. But it is going to push us to be on the top of our toes. I mean, the, the, the center of gravity in the world is changing, but we should be positive about this. I mean, this, this is a good thing. It's going to push us to be on the top of our toes while it will push us to be better as well and to really go into a situation of partnership and not this old north-south view, which in my view is completely um, past. So, so if I said the word China to you, how does Belgium think about China? How should the United States be thinking about China? How, sh how is the European Union thinking about China? Well. I agree with what, what, what Tony Blair said. China is, by its economic weight and by its demographics, a key player in the world. And that is not going to change. And I do not agree when he says, well, there's three main blocks in the world, being the United States, China, and India. I think Europe is um, by far one of them. But if you, because if you look at the role the European Union plays in the world, we are by far the biggest trading partner in the world, second to none. We are the biggest investor in development in the world. If yeah. you look at ODA spending, yeah. European Union and the countries, by far uh, the biggest one. We are by far the biggest investor in fighting uh, climate change, and we are a, a diplomatic force. It's only on the fifth dimension, which is military spending, where, yes, we are at a low level, and I agree with what has been said with the NATO that we need to increase our spending. But on four out of the five, we are second to none. We are not always playing that role, but we have the potential to play that role. Now, if uh, I mean the, the remarks on the Brexit were, were interesting to use yeah. <laughs> in a later yes. stage, but so we have an important role to play, which puts us at the same point as, 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 as China. Now, China and Africa uses different rules, and these are not our rules. We see that in our African partner countries, I mean, yes, they go much quicker, but there's also drawbacks. There is um, the offloading of depth 
on, uh, on a lot of the, of the partner countries and this is offloading of debt in a way which is afterwards very difficult to, to manage. It's one of the evolutions we see in the world. Debt levels are growing again. We're going to have a breakout session on sustainable debt later today so on the, for this very it, reason. It is, it is really a big, big, uh, big, big issue. Um, and, and of course we see that often that the investment that China is doing is, is, is contingent to deals in, in natural resources and so on. We also see that China has less patience than we have. We are investors, we are patient investors, uh, which has its advantages and its dis, uh, disadvantages. Um, but I, I honestly think that we can be, I mean, there's space for everyone in this. But we should not forget that often China and also Russia, Russia has become a big player in, 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 in Africa today. I mean, these are, they are behaving as authoritarian donors, if I can, could say it uh, that way. That's um, a very tweetable phrase, very interesting, <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm not against tweeting if the <laughs> question is being, uh, being asked. Um, and, and we have to focus on what we bring to the table and we have to be aware on the way they are doing business. Um, but the idea of saying, well, every investment we do needs to be, as Mark Green said, on the path to self-reliance. I agree on the thinking. I think the vocabulary is maybe not 100% correct because self-reliance is not really a goal. I mean, there's no country in the world that is self-reliant. No country is. I mean, we are all interconnected mm. and we're all dependent one on, on another. So the, 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 the idea of being self-reliant or not being dependent on aid, that I do understand. But is the United States and Belgium, are we reliant one on each other? Yes, we are, because we trade with each other. Yeah. And the more we trade with each other, um, the bigger the drawback is when we get into a huge fight. And, and, and so trade is a good thing. Trade is a force for peace, because the more countries trade with each other, the more they lose if they would get in, in, into Aid for trade is one of the areas that you, in your, of your development cooperation focus, mm -hmm. specifically, I suspect, for this reason. Sorry? You, aid for trade mm -hmm. is something that you, yep. you spend some of your development cooperation dollars on, for example. We do, and, and I think that too often when we talk about trade, and, and I'm, I'm focusing on the African countries, yes, sure. because that really yes. is where we put our effort, is that of course too often that is seen as trade between African countries and Europe, or between African countries and the United States. That is important, but that in my view is not the key point. The key point of trade is within Africa. Within and the, Africa. And the trade within Africa is, is, is minimal. It's, it's often almost inexistent. And it's inexistent because of tariffs, because of lack of infrastructure, because corruption, uh, because of all sorts of problems. The benefit of trade within Africa is far greater than the benefit of trading with, uh, with, with Europe. And there, we can be a partner in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in that. And that that is a partnership which is not based on financial resources. That is a partnership on knowledge yeah. and, on, and on being a supporter and, uh, and so on. So we, we, I wanted to raise the issue of forced migration. I asked Tony Blair this, and I, I think we're, we've got a big challenge with forced migration. The big show in my mind is Africa. Some of it certainly is demography. You also have urbanization. You have a whole series of you know, a large youth bulge in Africa. So how, how is Belgium thinking about the issue of, of forced migration and how is that impacting how you're thinking about it from a foreign policy standpoint or from how you're thinking about your development cooperation? How are you thinking about that? Well, well first of all, 
Look, we, we are living in a world where so many things are more mobile than they have ever been. Yeah. Capital is super mobile. Uh, goods and services are, are more easily traded than it ever happened before. Now, people have been moving around the world always. It's always happened. So the idea that you could be living in a globalized world where everything is moving freely, but then this time, for the first time in history, people are not. I mean, that, that's, that's, it's never going to happen. Mm. People are moving. People are going to migrate. It's part of, of the history we have, and it's part of the world that you're living in. The whole question, of course, is how do you have a regulated migration and how you deal with irregular yeah. uh, migration. There is a direct link between the two. The less possibility you have for regular migration, the more irregular migration you will have. So creating uh, legal ways of migration, which are controlled, which are safe. I mean, we should stop with this, which, which almost organizing this Russian roulette, which is the Mediterranean Sea, which basically means, okay, you can, you can have a shot at trying to get across that sea, mm. and if you survive it, then we will see if you will get a spot in, 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 in Europe. I mean, what a cynical system is that? And so we should be much more candid in saying, well, we want centers in the north of Africa where we can um, have a conversation with people and we can make a difference between economic migration and people who are asylum seekers uh, and, and so on. But we need migration from the perspective of um, the needs that you have in, in some countries because of mm. aging and, and so on, but also from a development perspective. Too often, we have seen migration as a, um, how to say, as a definitive thing. People are moving from A to B, yeah. and that's it. That's not the world of today. I mean, the world of today is that people will move for a few years and then maybe move back in the other yeah. direction. Uh, remittances play a very important yeah. role. So remittances is basically the money that people send back to their families. Remittance, the volume in remittances is three times bigger than the official development assistance. The so other, it's the, gigantic. The other thing that's happened is, is 15 or 20 years ago, the ratio between taxes collected in Africa and foreign aid, it was, we collect, the Africans collected f about five times the amount of taxes that was spent by, by all ODA, all foreign aid. Mm -hmm. Today, there's 10 times the amount of, uh, Africans collect 10 times the amount of taxes compared to the amount of foreign aid. Not because the world is stingier, there's been a lot more spending in Africa of foreign aid, but because of more formality, a growing middle class, economic growth in Africa, they're collecting a lot more taxes in Africa. So you're right, there are these other flows, whether it's remittances or whether it's even the tax, tax flows in, in their own, tax collections in their own country. There's all sorts of these other flows that have happened. And, and, and that I think is the assistance that you talked, you had a conversation about graduation and, yeah. and that is a, a delicate topic, but indeed, countries are moving on. Yeah. And, and, and we have some great examples of countries moving on where then the relation we have is not so much a relation of financial investments. A lot of countries do not really have needs for financial investment, but they have needs for expertise. Uh, if you look at countries in, in Africa like Algeria, for example, th these are not poor countries. I mean, these countries have a lot of financial resources yeah. because of the natural resources that they have. In the end, it should be the same for a country like the DRC, which unfortunately is an extreme, extremely poor country, which has a lot of natural resources. The whole question there is, what is an efficient tax system? And we see that if, I think that in Sub-Saharan Africa, the average tax collection is 18% is of GDP or something, uh, something like that, which 
mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm 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 a liberal in the European sense, uh, which means that I believe in free market and I believe in in, in a moderately small government. Mm. If I say in my country that we are assisting African countries and building a better taxation system, a lot of my voters would laugh at me and would say, well, why don't you start in lowering taxes here in your own country? <laughs> um, and, I, and I do understand that, that, that remark, but building a tax system which has less um, loopholes yeah. and less kind of tax breaks being given to, to, to international uh, investments is one of the best things that you can do. We got to broaden, the EU has this free bumper sticker, broaden the base and uh, spend better. Right? Exactly. Well, well, broaden, make sure that everyone contributes and spend better. I mean, yeah. If a country has their own income, that's basically where we want to get. It's economic growth based on SMEs and a middle yep. class, people having salaries, moving from informal jobs to formal jobs, Amen. where they have, where they pay taxes, and paying taxes is a good thing if it finances a government, which can then set its own, uh, its own policy. Good, good, thank you, this is great, thank you. I, um, Mamadou, thanks for being here. Uh, like I said, the, the, I was taken by building prosperity or shared prosperity, when you, Chevron, makes an investment in a country, you, you all think about sort of, you have a 40 or 50 year mindset about these things. And um, talk a little bit about how Chevron uh, works with countries. And I want you to talk about how Chevron works in Africa in particular, because uh, it's a shared interest of both, of both yours and mine. Well, thank you again, Dan, for uh, inviting us. Uh, it's a really great pleasure to be back in DC. Um, so in terms of uh, Chevron, uh, we, we operate, one of the great advantage uh, for us is that we operate globally. I mean, you go from the US itself, uh, Kazakhstan, you go to Asia, you go to Africa, you go to Latin America, you will have our presence. Uh, but I would like to uh, get the conversation in terms of how do we create value, right? Because at the end of the day, is, yes, uh, we invest in all these countries. We have a 30, 40 years view. When you look at it, most countries where we operate, Chevron has been uh, in Nigeria, it's 50 years, in Angola, 60 years. In a, uh, so it, it is definitely um, our, our, our way of doing business, taking a long-term view. Uh, but when we think about uh, creating value in countries where we operate, is five things, right? One is just the product we produce, energy. A lot of the conversation we had today talking about the private sector, there will be no way in Africa, for instance, or even in Latin America, in Asia, that you will be able to create private sector, you will be able to have a prosperous private sector, industrialization, creation of jobs without power. You take a country like Liberia, the product pr power is about 50 cents the kilowatt. No businesses of his right mind will create a job. Now, you and I here, we pay about eight cents the kilowatt. Mm. And a, US, a typical US company will pay about four cents a kilowatt. As the Ethiopian, why Chinese companies, we'll talk a lot about yeah. the Chinese, are delocalizing their industries to come to Ethiopia and produce uh, textile that today we are consuming in the West because of power, cheap labor, and transportation with Ethiopian airlines. So I think it is very critical to look at, uh, 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 for ourselves, the product we put out there with reliable source of energy, be it, and, and for me, we've got to look at everything. I'm amazed when I, I look at Africa, North Africa, tremendous amount of gas. Why power is not cheap in all the North African countries? 
West Africa. Nigeria has more gas than oil. We, Chevron, today we are supplying about 40% of the Nigerian natural gas demand. We can go even more if we were allowed, if the policies were right, we were allowed to produce more natural gas. We put out a pipeline from Nigeria to Ghana via Benin and Togo. We are not even tapping into that pipeline because of lack of the right policies that will allow us to tap into that natural gas. Nigeria has today enough gas to produce electricity and bring that at a very lower cost in the entire West Africa. I really applauded the Obama administration when they put up Power Africa in place. I was initially involved in the discussion and you know, we, need, we need to take it further. We need to have the right policies in place so that we can tap into all kinds of sources of energy to make power available. Electricity needs to be cheap, reliable, so that we can access it. You look at Mozambique, East Africa. Today we're all talking about LNG, but I'm not, having, I'm not hearing the discussion about how do we generate enough electricity for all East Africa so that power costs will go down, companies will start coming in, producing, and then you will start moving the fabrics, the, 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 the plants from China to Africa. And then we can leverage AGOA that Ambassador Froman, you worked so hard um, uh, to put in place and that we can definitely benefit from it. Second, uh, after, in terms of the, supplying, uh, the supply of, after the supply of power, um, and by the way, which is linked to the SDG, access to energy. So to me, that product that my company and others are responsible for, we are definitely a player in this development game, and we need to make that issue of access to power funder stage. Second is through the, the job creation and the supply chain. You know, when I look at in countries where we operate, uh, we first thing we do is to really find local suppliers. It doesn't do any good for us to supply ourselves from companies elsewhere. We need to create local companies. It brings costs down, and it is in our best interest. So I take a country like uh, Angola, where in our supply chain system, we generate, we, we invest about $2 billion a year into the local economy through local suppliers. Nigeria, same thing. So it is really, and that creates jobs. Because of our presence in Angola, a study that has been done from 2010 to 2016, it's about 79,000 jobs Oof. that we have created. Really? Even though Chevron and the oil industry in general is not job intensive. So the workforce for Chevron is about 3,000 people on, on, on average in some of the countries. But because of our presence, because of the investment into the local economy, in Nigeria it's 79,000. In Nigeria it's about 100,000 uh, uh, because of our presence. Right? You look at the, the, the impact on the GDP. This, a study that, uh, an independent study that's demonstrated that because of Chevron investment, it's about, between 2010 and 2016, it's about 5.6% of the GDP of that country. In Nigeria, it's about 2% of the GDP. So these are staggering numbers when you look at our investment and if well managed, right, can really just unleash uh, the development. Third, it's about generating revenue for the government. We pay taxes in every country where we are. On top of that, we have a policy, every country where we operate, we partner with the national oil company in general. Right. So, and they have a fair share. On average, in Nigeria, it's about 90% that the national oil companies uh, take in terms of for every uh, barrel. In Angola, 93%, right? So, one, the national oil companies get the, the, a fair share. The government gets revenue with taxes, and that's just 
amount of revenue and that uh, uh, you were saying about Algeria, for instance, yes, these are very wealthy countries that get enough cash. And if they also can have good governance structure, it will just help accelerate the development. The, another point uh, in terms of creating value uh, in our perspective is through our social investment. We look at the communities where we operate as a cornerstone. I mean, there is no way you can operate in, uh, in, in, the, in these places if you don't have the social license to operate. Because simply, the communities, if they are living in abject poverty, they look at an oil-producing com company producing flaring, and they don't have access to electricity. They are living in abject poverty. They will be, they will be upset and they will be attacking the company or they will be attacking government and it will create problems. So we see it as part of our, it's our, really our DNA, that everywhere we operate, and actually this is not just in developing countries, in here in the US, you go to the Texas Midland, right, where there is a boom in the, in the shale gas uh, and the shale oil, we are investing in the, within the community. You go to Pennsylvania, we're investing in a community where we operate. So we do the same thing in Niger Delta, we do the same thing in Kabinda, we do the same thing in the Tengiz in Kazakhstan region. So we, saw that, we see that as part of our DNA, as part of our uh, contribution to the communities. And these are not small numbers. When I look at uh, the last four years, Chevron has invested about $1 billion in communities around our operations. And we do that with USAID. And then, you, you know, I, I'm very proud that Chevron was among the first company back, what, 2002? Yeah. When the peace process came um, into Angola, we were asked by the Angolan government to invest to see how we can make sure the peace dividend will be immediately seen by the population. And USAID Chevron joined forces, uh, to about $25 million that we yeah. put together quickly uh, uh, to, 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 to invest and then to make sure people in Angola will move out of food aid into start planting, start getting seeds, getting technical assistance. So in one year, we're able to move people from receiving food aid to start looking at development. We're very pleased with IFC to join uh, IFC as a partner to create the first uh, microfinance bank in Angola. Today, that bank still exists. And this was created in 2004. Today, that bank, when I was leaving Angola, I left Angola in 2010. At that time, the bank was set up in, 24, in 24, 2004. By 2010, we had given about $50 million worth of loan. And today, the bank is still there. So that's a type of institution yeah. that, where we can be a catalyst and they still exist, uh, and they still add value uh, to the population. Um, so I see that um, uh, our presence, uh, we are a force of good. We, we produce a product that can really make a difference in people's life. And uh, again, in this discussion about job creation, like you were saying, 1.7 million jobs, I really insist on this we need to look at all kinds of source of energies to make sure we, it can really happen. Thank you. Okay, I want to have a, I have a question for each of you, which is, I mean, I could make the case as well, but I want each of you to make the case for Africa as a business opportunity. Let me start with you, Mamadou. Make the case for Africa as a business opportunity. Well, you know, when you look at around the world, what is, uh, what is left, right, <laughs> first? But uh, I, I think all the statistics, I don't need to get into those. You all know the statistics. What I'm going to tell for the American audience first is don't wait until the ecosystem is perfect. You have to take that risk and you need to look at the, 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 what you can bring to the table and go. 
and partner with local companies. We're talking about Kenya on the IT sector. We're talking about the textile industry in some of these countries. There are so many things that American companies can bring to the table. I look at my own company. We create our own ecosystem. We don't wait that everything is perfect before we get in. Yes, it is a mature industry, and we're talking about here more small, medium enterprises. Follow the American, some of the American companies that already exist, that are already operating in the continent. Let's talk. Second, and that is an effort that I'm asking also people here in Washington. We need to get out of the beltway. You know, I was um, uh, invited to join uh, some African ambassadors over the weekend to talk about how do you really attract capital to Africa. And I was telling them, one of the key things you need to understand in America is a hub concept. You want to talk, you want to attract investors to the energy sector in your country, go to Texas. Go sit down in Texas to talk to the oil companies. You want to talk about IT, go to California to meet them and, at, and convince them to come. So we companies already in place, we also need to work with uh, the, the, the African government and CSIS to really get out of the beltway and just send a message, get more companies to get, to get interested. I will say um, the, la the latest uh, uh, legislation to uh, allow uh, more capital uh, so that U.S. companies can, um, can, uh, can get access to capital. The Build Act. Will, the Build Act okay. will really help. Uh, but again, we used to have a great exim policies. Many yeah, we countries need to have fix that. But if we don't help small, medium enterprises, oh, they will not even know that it exists. So we need the policymakers also need to go out and make the case uh, to work with U.S. companies. Okay, please make yeah. the case for Africa as an opportunity. Look, I think too, too often um, businesses see Africa as CSR. And I, I am not against CSR, um, but if we see great progress today in Africa, for example, in, 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 uh, in mobile technology, there's, I think, 700 million mobile phones in Africa. You have 700 million mobile phones in Africa because not because it's not CSR because it's business. Yeah. If it were CSR, you would have two million mobile phones in Africa. Okay. And everyone would say, wow, great, look what you did. You have to look at it from a business perspective. And making a profit is not a bad thing. I know that in the development world, it is a delicate topic. Making a profit is a good thing. And there is no sustainable business if you don't make a profit at some point. Now, I'm not advocating here monopoly profits and all systems of tax evasion. That is a different discussion. But making a reasonable profit enables you to invest in growth, to invest in innovation, to attract more people, and, and so on. So we should, I think, go away from the charity CSR perspective and see Africa as a business perspective. And there is a profit to be made and there is a big difference between the perceived risk and the real risk. Good. The perceived risk is high. The real risk in most locations is actually much lower. Okay, Stephanie, I would argue that the reason we have se several hundred million cell phones is because of IFC and some of the DFIs, because Thank you guys you. enabled <laughs> Celtel and a number of other African cell phone companies to happen. Um, and so I know you'll, to, but make the case, make the economic case for, make the case of Africa as an opportunity, if you would, please. Okay, so I think I'll start where you left off, which is most people see risk, we see opportunity. If you look at our equity book, it's at par or outperforms in Africa, other parts of the world, so that's one. But we've talked a lot about demographics. I would go back to the positive side of demographics. In Africa, by 2030, there's gonna be 150 
million middle class citizens. That's a huge market. It's an opportunity for fast moving consumer goods. It's an opportunity for real estate. It's an opportunity for energy. It's an opportunity for telecom companies. It's an opportunity, pharmaceuticals, you name it. And that is where the growth is going to come. And so I think when we look at stagnating markets in the developed world and we look at that growth of that middle income in Africa, there is big opportunities. Well, I agree with everything. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I, I appreciate that, that Alexander, the, the deputy prime minister, made the case for profit making in the private sector. So I, I think that's absolutely yeah. right. We absolutely have to do that. And that's why I talk about commercially sustainable social impact. And I agree with Stephanie on the demographics. There is a very positive, including human capital, a growing middle class. And when you add to it the technology of being able to digitize the base of the pyramid and begin to pull more and more people into the networks that they need to be part of in order to lead productive lives and increase their prosperity. Um, and uh, that's, I think, the, the, the real key here. And I think we're at that point where the technology exists, you've got some good policies in many countries around the country. They're actually opening up to each other in ways unprecedented through these uh, tripartite free trade agreements and continental-wide free trade agreements. Uh, you've got some good, and, and, and of course, you've got the demographics and great human capital on the continent that we should be reaching out to and building uh, commercially sustainable businesses with. Great. All right, can you join me in thanking this great panel, please? Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks Mike. Good to see you. Thanks. My, what, can I ask you to take your belongings with you because we're going to be doing some set changes here. Don't forget to take your belongings. Thanks again and, and join us outside for coffee. Thank you.